0: Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus.
1: All right, all right. Good morning, everybody. So glad that you're here this morning. I want to welcome all of you watching and listening online in cottage country across Ontario, actually around the world. We're glad that you're with us this morning. Welcome to week three in our summer series out of Psalms called Let the Light In. Two weeks ago, we began this conversation together and we realized, many of us for the first time, that what we have in our Bibles or what you can read, the book of Psalms as we have it today, took a thousand years to write and compile by multiple authors now, we also learned as we started going through this that there are probably 10 different styles of Psalms. And I use the analogy of Netflix, and we all confessed we watched too much of it. But as we started talking about Netflix, it's a perfect analogy for our culture. You go and you want to watch a different style, sci-fi documentary, a TV show, etc. You choose what you want to watch in the mood you're in. Or I talked about a golf bag where you have different clubs for different reasons on the course. So the same with the Psalms. There are 10 distinct genres or styles that God has given us that have been articulated by our great-grandparents spiritually who have walked through life already. And so the Psalms not only is a call to praise, the Psalms is not only like the hymn book of our faith, the Psalms gives us the words to talk to God when we are good, great, terrible, awful, rageful, or just bored. Now last week we started into the styles of Psalms. And if you were with us here or online, we were in Psalm 1. Now Psalm Psalm 1 is the gateway Psalm to all 150. Psalm 1 is an invitation to know all that God wants to teach us and walk with us through the book of Psalms. And the style or the genre of Psalm 1 is a wisdom Psalm. I said a few weeks ago, it's like singing a sermon. Now, what we're going to do today is we're going to move to a different style. If you've got a Bible this morning, physically, or it's on one of your devices, I'd like you to turn to Psalm 19. Psalm 19 has been hailed by Christians, Jews, and many secular people as one of the greatest poems and songs ever written in human history. Now, this type of psalm, this genre today, is actually a creation psalm. This is a psalm that is to talking about God as creator. The, the, the uh, creation psalms celebrate and remind us that God is the sustainer of the universe. He stabilizes the universe. The creation psalms say that creation is good, and God speaks through his... His creation. The psalms, this style of psalm calls us to the artistry, the complexity, the beauty, the color, the rhythm, the order of creation as a source of seeing God, hearing from God, and worshiping God. Now before I get going and preaching this morning, I'm going to do something I, I don't think I ever usually do. I would like you just to put your Bibles down for a moment. I'd like you to turn your attentions to the screens, and I'd like you to watch
0: this video. Let's watch it together. In 1966, Time magazine ran a cover story asking, is God dead? The cover reflected the fact that many people had accepted the cultural narrative that God is obsolete, that as science progresses, there's less need for a God to explain the universe. It turns out, though, that the rumors of God's death were premature. In fact, perhaps the best arguments for his existence come from, of all places, science itself. Here's the story. The same year Time featured its now-famous headline, the astronomer Carl Sagan announced that there were two necessary criteria for a planet to support life—the right kind of star and a planet the right distance from that star. Given the roughly octillion planets in the universe—that's one followed by 24 zeros—there should have been about septillion planets—that's one followed by 21 zeros—capable of supporting life. With such spectacular odds, scientists were optimistic that the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, known by its initials SETI, an ambitious project launched in the 1960s, was sure to turn up something soon. With a vast radio-telescopic network, scientists listened for signals that resembled coded intelligence. But as the years passed, the silence from the universe was deafening. As of 2014, researchers have discovered precisely not a zilch, which is to say zero followed by an infinite number of zeros. What happened? As our knowledge of the universe increased, it became clear that there were, in fact, far more factors necessary for life, let alone intelligent life, than Sagan supposed. His two parameters grew to 10, then 20, and then 50, which meant that the number of potentially life-supporting planets decreased accordingly. The number dropped to a few thousand planets and kept on plummeting. Even SETI proponents acknowledge the problem. Peter Schenkel wrote in a 2006 piece for Skeptical Inquirer, a magazine that strongly affirms atheism, In light of new findings and insights, we should quietly admit that the early estimates may no longer be tenable. Today, there are more than 200 known parameters necessary for a planet to support life, every single one of which must be perfectly met or the whole thing falls apart. For example, without a massive, gravity-rich planet like Jupiter nearby to draw away asteroids, Earth would be more like an interstellar dartboard than the verdant orb that it is. Simply put, the odds against life in the universe are astonishing. Yet, here we are, not only existing but talking about existing. What can account for it? Can every one of those many parameters have been perfectly met by accident? At what point is it fair to admit that it is science itself that suggests that we cannot be the result of random forces? Doesn't assuming that an intelligence created these perfect conditions in fact require far less faith than believing that a life-sustaining Earth just happened to beat the inconceivable odds? But wait, there's more. The fine-tuning necessary for life to exist on a planet is nothing compared with the fine-tuning required for the universe to exist at all. For example, astrophysicists now know that the values of the four fundamental forces gravity, the electromagnetic force, and the strong and weak nuclear forces were determined less than one millionth of a second after the Big Bang. Alter any one of these four values ever so slightly, and the universe as we know it could not exist. For instance, if the ratio between the strong nuclear force and the electromagnetic force had been off by the tiniest fraction of the tiniest inconceivable fraction, then no stars could have formed at all. Multiply that single parameter by all the other necessary conditions, and the odds against the universe existing are so heart stoppingly astronomical that the notion that it all just happened defies common sense. It would be like tossing a coin and having it come up heads 10 quintillion times in a row. I don't think so. Fred Hoyle, the astronomer who coined the term Big Bang, said that his atheism was greatly shaken by these developments. One of the world's most renowned theoretical physicists, Paul Davies, has said that the appearance of design is overwhelming. Even the late Christopher Hitchens, one of atheism's most aggressive proponents, conceded that without question the fine-tuning argument was the most powerful argument of the other side. Oxford University professor of mathematics Dr. John Lennox has said, The more we get to know about our universe, the more the hypothesis— that there is a creator gains in credibility as the best explanation of why we are here. The greatest miracle of all time is the universe. It is the miracle of all miracles, one that inescapably points to something or someone beyond itself. I'm Eric Metaxas for Prager University.
1: The heavens declare... The glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them yet. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. Maybe the ancient people aren't as stupid as we're being told Today, creation, all of it. From angels to atoms, from whales to trees, from seas to sky, billions of stars, bugs, animals, mountains, lakes, every species, everything, from human beings to flowers, rocks to mountaintops, from diamonds to dirt, all of creation, all of it in its complexity, all of it in its color, all of it declares and proclaims and pours forth speech about the existence of God and even the nature of God. God. This chaotic order that is so rhythmed, that we live in, creation and all of its pageantry and beauty and sweetness and terror, all of it, day and night, seven days a week, 24 hours a day, announces and forms and points human beings to the artist and their creator. This soundless speech, the psalmist says, is everywhere. It is for everybody. It is available to every human being and has been since Adam and Eve. It is all-consuming. See, creation announces, informs, literally gushes forth the reality of God. Creation is actively speaking right now. It is actively giving knowledge right now now. It is actively saying and speaking to the reality of God. It is actually pointing out though something else, that not only is there a creator, but the creator is different than and higher than and is the source of creation. This is why as Christians, if you've ever read the Apostles Creed, which is the best mini summary of our faith, begins like this. You know, we believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. All that we hold to as Christians begins with the existence of God and creation itself. The very first verse in the Bible begins like this, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Creation, color, beauty, all we see, all we smell, all we sense, all we touch, all we experience, is not some cosmic mistake, is not a bang without purpose, is not some experiment from some alien race. No, God, the great artist, has created the heavens and the earth. Anyone want to say amen yet? This is what we're about. But not just any God, for there are millions of gods, those entities that claim to be God and those things invented by us. No, no, there is only one true living God, revealed first and foremost to Adam and Eve and then to Israel and fully through Jesus. Oh, hear, oh Israel, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord our God is one. This is the call of the psalmist, but amazingly, Psalm 19 is not just praise. In Psalm 19, it is not just worship. In Psalm 19, is not just fact. We miss the scandal and the power and the exclusivity of this psalm. This psalm is po- polemic. This was saying when it was written that all the other religions that surrounded the Jewish neighbors were wrong. See, the neighbors of the Jews worshipped creation. They worshipped the sun and the moon and the stars and creation. But the Bible cries out, no, no, there is only one true living God and all that you are worshipping are not gods at all, but are actually made by our God. Our God spoke your gods into existence. Your gods are not gods at all. They are under our God. Your gods are not true. They are under and created by the one true, only uncreated God. See the Bible is so clear about this it has been for thousands of years but the shadow of sin becomes so obvious and so apparent when you begin with God as creator see every time human beings lift ourselves up when we put anything else in front of or to replace God when we end up worshipping not the creator but created things it produces nothing but brokenness see the heart of sin the heart of trespass the heart of iniquity the root root of all brokenness started with misdirected worship. Paul wrote this hundreds of years later after Psalm 19 and Romans 1:20, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been what? clearly seen, being understood from what he has been made what he has been made so that people are without excuse they exchange the truth of God for a lie and they worship and serve created things rather than the creator who has ever praised amen, anytime you lift up anything in front of God whether silence or philosophy or religion or yourself or technology or you invent another faith that is not based on the creator, all of this is Suddenly, idolatry because you end up worshiping something made by the Creator, not the Creator Himself. Well, the Psalm keeps going in verse 4. It moves from all of general creation and focuses just down to one thing, it focuses on the sun. It says that in the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. Now again, we miss the power and offense of this. Any person who was reading the Psalms who was not Hebraic, any person who read the book of Genesis would understand the offense of this. See, the Canaanites and many of the other religious groups around the Hebrews worshiped the sun as the God of justice. It was a primary God. But see, this psalm once again declares no. No, the sun is no God. It is created by our God. Our God set your God in the heavens. Yahweh is justice, not you. It is like a bridegroom, it says in verse 5, coming out of his chamber, that's the sun, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. The sun is described like a groom on his wedding day, getting dressed up, really excited, filled with joy because he's going to go meet his wife. He is like a, a champion, a mighty warrior, ready to fight and win the day, run and complete the race. And more, nothing is hidden from the sun. For as the sun circuits for 24 hours, it arcs over all of creation and over every human being. And what's implied in here is this if the sun sort of covers everything with its warmth, so the creator will actually be even more watching and will know even more. Nothing escapes the sun and nothing escapes its creator. And yet we're stuck with a problem creation isn't enough. Creation may point to the existence of a God, as we even saw in that video, but here's the question. Is he personal? Is he good? Is he evil? Does he care? Is he a force? Is he a thing? Is he an it? A he or she? What is it out there? See, creation points to the existence of a creator, but then falls definitely silent. See, Thomas Aquinas, the great church father, said these words, He said, revelation, true knowledge of meeting God is like a two-story house. Creation allows you to walk into the first level and know that there is a God and know that he's a God of artistic power. He's an engineer. He loves order and chaos and he blends them together. You can know so much about your creator in creation, but then you are stopped because does he have a name? Is he one or many? Is he kind? Is he benevolent? Is he evil? And he says to move from the first level of the house, which is creation, into the second level of house to meet the owner of the house, God himself has to speak. God himself has to reveal. And the good news that we proclaim in our faith is this. God didn't just set up the universe and walk away. No, no. God revealed himself also. See, this psalm is amazing because it starts in general creation, in general revelation, and then moves to specific revelation. At this moment, this psalm moves from a creation psalm back into a wisdom psalm. And here's what is about to be declared. The God of the universe, who is our creator, is personable and can be known not only by name, but in relationship. When I was reading Psalm 19 this week, I learned something I've never found out before as I've read this psalm. If you read this in Hebrew, the original language, the first six verses of this this psalm, the name God is El, E-L. It's the most generic name for God. It was even used by other faiths. But at this moment in the psalm, the name changes from El to Yahweh. At this moment, we move from general to specific. And why does that matter? Because the name Yahweh in the Old Testament is God's revealing name. It is God's covenantal name. When God decides to let people know who he is, when God doesn't just declare he exists, but he wants to actually walk with human beings and be in almost like a marriage relationship with them, this is the name he uses. Now, I want you to understand this. So there is a creator, El, but his his full name is Yahweh, and he's knowable. But the word knowable is so important. I preach this all the time in this church. See, from a biblical worldview, knowledge is not mere intellectual understanding. Yes, there is a God. No, no. Real knowing, according to the Bible, is personal and experiential. That is why the word to know in the Bible is always used for the word sex. When you know your spouse, you don't just intellectually know something. You have met your spouse at the deepest level possible. This is the difference between knowing about something and actually knowing something. And when the word or the name Yahweh is used, it always implies relationship, covenant, and knowingness. And so God revealed himself through the prophets and the patriarchs, which is recorded now in his written word, the scriptures. And so that is why the psalm moves from the creation declaring and proclaiming the glory and the power of God, now to a God who has chosen to let us know him. And he has not only revealed himself in history, he has given us his word. Verse 7, God's law, the Bible, the law of the Lord is perfect and it's refreshing for the soul. God's Word is whole, complete, without blemish. It doesn't lack anything. God's Word, you can trust it every single time. It's right, it's pure, it's certain, it's perfect. And when you want God, and you want His Word, and when you live under His Word, and when God's Word guides your life, it becomes refreshing. Now, do you see that word, refreshing? If you're taking notes this morning, I learned something else that was just unbelievable, mind-blowing for me. The word refreshing in Hebrew means refreshing to refresh, check, obvious. It also means to be revived. It's where we get our word revival from. But something else I learned this week, the exact word for revive is also the same word in Hebrew. Ready? For repentance. And so when you read this and you go, oh my goodness, you're telling me that when I actually love the scriptures and love the author of the scriptures and love the author of the universe and actually I begin to get restored and I get revived and at the same time in the same breath I'm called to repentance. That is the picture of encounter. God's word will not only restore you and will not only revive you and it will not only refresh you, but at the same time it will call us to repent so we can return continually to the author of the scriptures, and continue to walk with the author of the universe, and not hide from, any, hide from him anymore. See, we as a church have been praying for revival, and we've been praying it in the biblical sense, not sort of the historic sense of just tense. No, no, we're asking people in this church to fall in love with Jesus more than they ever have before. Every single person who calls c for their home to encounter Jesus in a new way, and fall in love with him. Well, if you want this revival, which is now present, to keep spreading among us, then the law of the Lord should be at the heartbeat of who we are, because when we love our Creator, and we have found Him through Yahweh, because that is who He is, and then we love His law, we will be refreshed, we will be revived, we will be called to repentance, and we will be made whole. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, the psalmist says, making the wise simple, We're called to this radical new life because we've been loved by God. We now love him back. When we love the scriptures, we understand that God speaks primarily that way. Blessed are you, someone says, when you delight in God's law. Blessed are you when you know the scripture is not drudgery but life-giving. Blessed are you when you obey God's word. See, remember the psalms are not just songs. The psalms are not just poems to inspire. The psalms are not even just prayers to cry out. They are scripture themselves. We know who our creator is because he has shown us his name and giving us his word. And through that, we get to walk again in relationship with him. Let me just stop and say this again. Do you remember last week? I said that when you approach the scriptures, when you approach the Bible, no matter when you approach it, there are two postures every one of us must have. The first posture is this. We have to have our arms wide open. We never come to the scriptures like this. Or like this. We always come like this. Why? Because we are saying to God, you are creator and I am animated dust. You are perfect and I am imperfect. You know all things and I do not. So you can come through your word and you can speak to me about anything. You have every right to speak to me about my view of money, theology, religion, politics, race, sex, sexuality. You fill in the blank. You have the right and I will not come prepared to fight you. I will not come with my arms crossed or pushing you back. Oh God, because I know you are love, because I have met you, because your name is Yahweh. Speak, Lord. You are trustworthy, and so is your word. And remember the other image, it's this. We come bowed. That is in the sense that we come humble. We come ready to hear what God has to say. Scriptures interpret us. We, at the end of the day, do not interpret them. The psalmist says that God has revealed himself in creation and specifically revealed himself in history and given us the scriptures. And it says that we are made wise when we know his word. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. God's word gives us order and direction. God's words are not misleading. They don't lead you astray. They are good and perfect. You ever been in a car before and you've put in either your iPhone or your Android or in your car a a GPS coordinate to take you somewhere? Everyone done this before? And you've been driving and you follow turn left here? Turn, right? Good morning, John. Where would you like to go, right? Surrey talks to me, my best friend, right? And as you're driving, you end up in the totally wrong place after obeying the GPS. You ever had that experience? The Bible will never do that to you. The Bible will never send you to the wrong place. The Bible doesn't have a problem. The commands of God are like the sun. They are radiant, They're giving life. They expose darkness. They make things clear. This is why later in the Psalms, Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet, a light for my path. Anyone break out in a little song in your head? Some of you know what I'm talking about. See, this this is what the psalmist says. The heavens declare the glory of a creator. And that creator has not walked away, but made himself known. And that creative God, that creator God, that artist has given us love. And he has given us his word because he wants to walk with us again like we once did in Eden. And right here in this psalm, in in verse 9, by the way, you see the transition. Now here, the psalmist is saying, and I actually have met the creator. The fear of the Lord, everyone ready, is pure. It's enduring forever. The fear of the Lord is a relational term. But what does fearing God mean? Well, simply put, it means worship and faithfulness to a God you're in love with. And notice, it's radically relational, fully theocentric. It's all about God and his relationship with us. See, real knowledge equals real knowing, and real knowing means real life change. Draw near to God, the scripture says, and he will draw near to you. Fear is about respecting God, and fear is about awing God, and fear is about loving God, and fear actually is about fearing God. When you begin to understand that you and I are not the center of the universe, that we are animated dust, as the Bible says, we're here in the morning, Morning and God by the evening, but he is uncreated. When you understand that God is both holy and love, when you in a balanced way know that God is close and far, imminent, transcendent, judge, king, brother, friend, savior, and Lord, only then will you begin not only to fear him appropriately, not going off the deep end saying he's your best friend and he has no agenda for your life, or being so terrified of him that you can't love him, but when you have met him in his holiness and his love, then you You will want to walk with him And be like him And be directed to him And be directed by him Because his wisdom is better Because he is the creator And our creator is love The decrees of the Lord are firm Verse 9 All of them are righteous I've grown up in church I come from generations of Christians And I find it interesting When I hang out with church people Who love God But people who have done the church thing for a while one of the interesting things that sits at the back of the recesses of church people's minds sometimes is their frustration with God for being so clear. I know it sounds strange, but much of the time, people are like, you know, I just wish God would be a little bit more gray on certain issues. I just wish he'd be more flexible. I, I, I just, I, you know, I just wish he wouldn't be saying, like, God, did you really get that right? Like, why did you... Mm. But you know what? Our spiritual ancestors would shake their heads at us and and not understand. And many of you listening and watching online would say the same if you've come from another faith background. See, we miss the power and the beauty and the hope of God's clear standards. And here's why. Because many of us have never been in bondage to gods that change their minds. In ancient times, one person wrote these words. Think about it. He said the ancient gods of paganism, so Egyptian, Babylonian, Canaanite, fill in the blank, operated with just as a twisted moral standard as human beings have. The gods of Greece, the gods of Rome, all of them, they lied, they cheated, they stole, they were deeply sexually promiscuous, they generally outdid their human servants with a lack of consistent morality every single time. The only thing that distinguished the gods of the nations with human beings was two things. They lived forever, and they were powerful. Therefore, whatever the gods demanded, you had to obey them because they had the power to make your human existence miserable. And by the way, you would never, ever, ever outlive them. And then you read the Psalms, and you go, oh my goodness. Our God's not like that. My God's not a cheat. My God's not a liar. My God's not sexually fooling around and producing, you know, Hercules. No. My God is love. And my God is holy. And my God isn't touched by sin. And his word and his nature are the same. And it doesn't change. I know that every time I encounter God, it's not going to be a different face, a different thing, a different experience. He isn't fooling around. He's not an abusive husband. He's not a thug of a father. No, 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 no. Our God is hope. And he's care. And he's security. And God's word also is whole and complete and reliable and trustworthy and consistent and perfect. It is the ultimate source for faith and practice. Oh, that I would actually know the creator God, but not only that, know that he is consistent, and know that he is holy, and know that he is loved. That should produce in a church, in the people hope, in any generation. Right? That is why the next verse, by the way, is so striking. It's quoted in so many songs, and yet so many of us who love God do not really believe these next words. The scriptures are more precious than gold, more pure than gold, than the sweeter they're sweeter than honey, than, than the honey from a honeycomb. In that culture, gold was the most expensive and most valuable metal. And honey from the honeycomb was like one of the rarest things you could get to eat. If you were super wealthy in the super 1%, you got honey from a honeycomb. In our culture, this is how this verse would read. The scripture is better than platinum. The scripture is more valuable than anything that Tiffany's has on its shelves in any store globally right now. The scripture is actually more precious than your house, more precious than your RSPs. The scriptures are better than any five-star meal you could pay in any city on earth. They're more wealthy, more beautiful, more fulfilling than anything you could buy or have or produce. The scriptures are that valuable. But do you believe what's sitting in your hand or on your phone through Uversion? Do you believe and live your life like this is more valuable than anything? Will you do if you've met the Creator. Because the next verse tells us why. By them, because this is about wisdom, not just knowledge. By them, your servant is warned. In keeping them, there's great reward. I'd like all of you to think about a river in your mind. Could you all do that right now? Just think about a river, any river in your head. You got it? On each, do you have it yet? Yes or no? Yeah, some of you don't. Think about a river. You can do this. It's not hard. Okay, the river. On each side of the river, there are these things called banks. And when a river overflows its banks, it brings destruction. Every time you turn on the news and there has been a flood, you will hear people saying that the dam has broken or the river or the lake overflowed its banks. The scriptures, our creator's word to us, are the river banks for us. And we are the river. He defines what is right and wrong. He marks out the boundaries because he actually invented life. The Bible says yes to things and no to things. The Bible calls things faithful or unfaithful. The Bible calls things sin or holy. He says this is good, this is bad, this is right, this is wrong, this is not neutral, this is neutral. And so when you are deeply in love with your creator in this order, When you've moved from the general world and you've met your creator and you are in love with him because you've experienced his love and holiness, then the Bible is not a set of dutiful rules, but it is a way to maintain a relationship, to keep a marriage healthy, strong, and vibrant, which gives purpose in life. If you have not met God, the Bible becomes one of the worst offensive, oppressive things in your life because it will be done out of duty. It will not be done out of love but the scriptures are clear. We are warned by the scriptures, and there's great reward when we keep them. The scriptures, Psalm 19 says there's a creator. Yes, the video compellingly with many other things proves that the universe continually says there is an author. But only through his word and through his self-revelation can we know who he is. And after you meet God personally, if you choose to and you're in relationship with him, then you get to pray with him. And then you get to pray to him and walk with him and and be with him and like him in a relational way. So we should not be shocked that the very end of the psalm, Psalm 19, moves to a personal prayer. This is basically the the thematic thing. I've seen creation. And I know there's creator. And now I've read over your scriptures. And I've now met you personally, Yahweh. And now that I'm in a personal relationship with you, God. Oh, how I want to keep it. How I want to walk in it. How I want to strengthen it. So God, I want you and your love. I want your holiness. I want your reign and rule. I do not want to be owned by or ruled over any longer by the gods of the nations or my own sin. But I want to be ruled by your love. But God, I have, watch this. A problem. I love the authentic rawness of the psalm. He says, I have an insurmountable problem. Though the creation pours forth the reality of God, and though the scriptures are clear about the boundaries, I have a problem, and it's this. Who can discern their own errors? God, I'm so blind to me. To my sin, I think things are good and okay or not that bad. And I'm so fallen, I just miss it. I'm blind. I can't tell the difference. I, I cannot perceive or recognize good or evil. And then when I think I can see, I can't see. Oh, how I need your help. How I need revelation. I need a standard above myself. What is sin, God, so I can avoid it? No sin is trivial since it offends your holiness and actually bites at your love. No sin is trivial because it ends up moving me away to worship created things. Oh, no sin is trivial because actually sin makes me hate and hurt myself. No sin is trivial because it actually tears at the fabric of the human family. Help me, I'm blind. And then he says this, forgive my hidden faults, I'm asking you, God, creator, you personally, I'm talking, this is you and me talking, you keep your servant from willful sins. May they they not rule over me, own me, be my master, keep me in bondage. Well, then I'll be blameless and innocent of great transgression. God, you show me in my thinking and my doing and my actions where I'm sinning and where I don't even know some of my hidden faults I don't even know I'm doing them. Oh, God, that created everything. Oh, God, that has spoken in history and through your word. Oh, God, forgive me of my hidden faults I don't know about. And God, forgive me for my willful, outright rebellion. Because I know you. Listen to this. Church, hear these words. I don't want to be like Adam and Eve anymore and hide from you. You came after me. No more hiddenness. Forgive me for refusing to obey when you told me to do something and I just said no. No. Oh God creator, forgive me that when my words and my thoughts and my motives and my deeds, I did something that your word is clear about and I knew it would hurt you or hurt someone else or myself. Forgive me. I, here's the phrase, I don't want sin to rule me. I want you to rule me. I want your relationship, I want our marriage, our covenant to keep strong that you created everything the psalmist is saying is just shocking and amazing and that you just didn't wind up a clock and walk away is even more amazing and that you wanted to meet me personally, make me out of billions of people and, and then you wanted to leave me is shocking and life fulfilling and hope stirring and comforting so I must say this with my last breath, to you creator God, to you the only true living God. To you, God, fully understood, found, and seen in Jesus Christ. Here's what he says. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. I love those three names of God. Lord, covenantal, knowable, revealed Lord. Lord, Rock, never changing, trustworthy, helpful, involved, never, ever, ever persuaded to evil, my rock. And the best one is Redeemer. Redeemer, the one who comes to the slave market and says this, you have put yourself in slavery and you are enslaved to sin and death and Satan and yourself. And a Redeemer walks into a slave market and pays the price and says, I'm saving you from all of this. In one psalm, you're moved from creation and the existence of a creator to a knowable God and his word to a personal cry between a dad and his child, between between God and a servant, from praise to instruction uh, to, to prayer, from creation to law to grace, however you work it out. In one psalm, we see how God has shown himself and how we get to walk with him again. Now remember, this is critical because this these psalms are given to us for seasons of life. So here's the question you should be asking. Well, when are the creation psalms helpful in my walk? Well, here's the first thing. Everyone ready? All the time. You're like, well, that's obvious. No, no. All the time. Let me tell you why. Creation and the creation psalms and God's wisdom gives every purpose person in this room purpose an ultimate meaning. I know this is heady, but can you I'm just begging you to hear this please. Please hear this this morning. One author was interacting with a guy named Paul Sartre, very famous, the father of existentialism, who basically in the end was an atheist. And I love this quote. Can you please listen if God doesn't exist, if there is no creator, there's no purpose or value in life. Watch this. Humans are absolutely free To choose to make of their life or not make of it whatever they choose. And that circumstance leads existentialists and many others to conclude that humans, are you ready, are condemned to be free. You go, what? I thought freedom was the biggest... No! This means that there are no limits to my freedom except freedom itself or the freedom not to be free. Absolute freedom is a condemnation, Paul Sartre writes, because there's no meaning or purpose behind anything that humans do. The only exist- Only the existence of a mind or a purpose beyond humans, that is God, could give meaning life, and that is God. And for Sartre and others, God does not exist, so there is no meaning or purpose. Absolute freedom is absolute condemnation if there is no God. But in the world of Israel, he writes, and I would say in the world of the church, where God not only is a theoretical idea, but he exists, God, his existence, his creation, and his word is a delight. It is a delight. God's word becomes a delight because it offers shape and meaning and purpose in life. It offers guidance for appropriate relationships to each other, ourselves, and God. Scripture and creation. How are the Christian psalms helpful? Here's this. Every time you read them, you are reminded you are not a random cosmic mistake. Amen. And that not only are you not a mistake, but creation pours forth the truth that there is meaning in this life and there is purpose in this life and the graveside isn't the last statement because there is meaning in this life, and meaning in the life to come, and the creator God has revealed himself. His name is Yahweh, and you can know him personally, and that is the thing. As you hear the blustering atheists, as you hear people struggle this through, just remember at the end of the day, they have no meaning, because their condemnation is freedom, and their freedom has no riverbanks, and they are God unto themselves, and it goes nowhere. Oh, how I want to be ruled by the God of the universe because he is love and he's a better master than anything I would ever do. Not only do they give us meaning and purpose, it's deeper. The creation psalms are one of the best places to worship Jesus. What? Oh, yes. The creation psalms are one of the best places to give exaltation and worship to Jesus because we actually have the New Testament now. And what did Paul write in Colossians 1.16? For in Jesus... All things were created, things in heaven, earth, visible, invisible, throne, power, ruler, authority. All things have been created through Jesus and for Jesus. Jesus is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus existed before the manger, and Jesus existed before Mary's womb, because Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. He's our creator God, and through him, Jesus, everything we see and don't see, was created. Jesus is not part of creation. Everything that God the Father made, he made by the means of Jesus. So again, stars, creation, fish, oceans, the universe. Are you telling me, John, that that guy who walked around from Nazareth 2,000 years ago created everything? Yes. Everything seen and unseen. So Psalm 19 has its fulfillment in Jesus. And here's the power of this. God didn't just create everything and walk away or set up some rules. He's involved this is how involved God is Jesus who's the rationale and the rhythm and the reason and the system not just a force but a personal God keeps all things together and Jesus came and lived in his own creation and lived a perfect life in his creation and died a perfect death in his creation and then was resurrected and declared it was finished and started restoring the creation back to the creator and one day when he returns all the universe is going to be perfect again because of the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? So when you read the creation Psalms, you should get your Pentecostal on. You should be going, yes, Jesus, you are worshipped. You should be going, oh my goodness, Jesus, the one I sang to this morning, you're the creator God, and you don't just care about my soul. You care about all of creation, and you're going to make everything right again. It's not just by and by. He's going to make it all right again. The creation psalms find their purpose in Jesus Christ. One last thing to say as we end, and here it is. In Gary Thomas's book, on different styles of how to walk with God by how he's designed us, sacred pathways. He talks about one group of us called naturalists. I'm not one of you, but it's all good. There's, uh, and he says naturalists are people that love to be in nature. You would much prefer praying at a beach or walking on a mountain or, you know, being in a field and worshiping God than even here sometimes. And I just want to say to you, you who are naturalists, that, that's how you primarily connect with God. I just want to say this to you. And number one, God bless you. We need you deeply in our church. But listen, the psalms that are creation-oriented should be the lexicon of your prayer life. Regularly, you should be pulling out these psalms to actually inform you of how to speak to the creator. If that's your natural draw, make sure that these are at the center of your prayer life because they will actually bubble up worship and devotion and connection for you that maybe it wouldn't for others who meet God in in sort of a different way. There is a creator. He is known ultimately through Jesus. His word is good and pure and, and beautiful and kind and should be at the heartbeat of our life, should be over our head and should guide our feet. This church should love the scriptures and want to be formed by the scriptures because the scriptures are given by our creator to learn how to walk like Adam and Eve and restore that once again. There should be no fight or resistance to our God. There should be a humility born in this church and in me that we realize that we are only animated dust and an uncreated person named God is truly in the end in control and he is love. But let me end where I think we must. Let's end where the psalmist ends. And I do this not just for dramatic moment. I mean this. Listen to this. Could you pray this? I'm not saying do it yet, just could you do this? Could you admit, who discerns their own errors? Could you say, could you forgive me my hidden faults, willful or unwillful? Could you say, Lord, keep uh, your servant from willful sins that they would not rule over me? Then I will be blameless of innocent and innocent of great transgression. Could we stand this morning and before our Creator Just pray this, because remember again, we are praying that God would not stop coming in this church till it is radically, deeply, supernaturally different. So Lord, creator God of the heavens and the earth, King of kings, Lord of lords, revealed one, giver of word and creation. Here's my prayer. Here's our prayer today. God, we want to admit as a church we can't discern our own errors. Oh man, so blind. Even after years of following you, blind. So Lord, open our eyes. We will not fight you. Forgive us our hidden faults. Some of us are sitting here today and we have done things and they are hidden, Lord, into that space we would ask. Others of us are just saying, I don't even know where I've messed up, Lord, because your love, would you, would you help me? Would you keep our church and us personally from willful sins? We do not want to be ruled by sin in this church. Help us to be blameless, innocent of great transgression. And then this is what we say to you, O Creator. May the words of C4's mouth and the meditation of C4's heart be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In the name of Jesus, we say this. We say amen, amen, amen. Let's now sing to our creator who's known.
0: Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of C4, visit c4church.com.